Well, good morning. It is good to be with you. Thank you to Gary and the faculty. I consider it a privilege to be able to share with you this morning. A number of years ago, there was a pastor in an inner city church in Boston. His name was Eugene Rivers. And he took over this church. It was a dying church. It was a struggling church in the inner city. And there were no youth coming out to his church. There was about 20 members in a huge facility. And he looked out his study window where his office was, and he saw the local drug dealer on the corner. And all the young people in the neighborhood would go up to this drug dealer. They would shake hands. They would high five. Seemingly, he had all kinds of influence with all the youth in the community. And this inner city pastor did something unconventional. He went over to the drug dealer. He left his office, left the church, went over to the drug dealer. And he said to him, I can't get any young people out to my church on a Sunday morning, yet you seem to know all of them. What's the deal? How come they are so relational with youth, but they don't come out to our church? Drug dealers don't mince words when they're talking about youth ministry. So he looked at the pastor and he said, Pastor, you want to know why I know all the youth and I have rapport with them and none of them are coming out to your church? He goes, yeah, that's what I want to know. So he said to him, when Tyrell gets up in the morning, I'm there, you're not. When Tyrell comes home for lunch... I'm there, you're not. When Tyrell is hungry at nighttime and his mom is strung out, I'm there, you're not. You want to know why you have no youth coming out to your church? It's because I'm there and you're not. And that pastor went back to his church on Sunday and he delivered that message to his church. And it was the spark that transformed that church from being a dwindling church to a vibrant church that engaged their community. And all they did was leave the building and show up and be a presence within the community. What I want to talk about in our time together this morning is the ministry of presence and how the church is to be a movement of God's people that incarnates and goes out amongst the community and captivates people with the compassion of Jesus Christ. We just read a passage just to place it in the context. Jesus has been ministering for about a year and a half at this point. He's been ministering down in Jerusalem. He's returned up to Galilee. He's doing amazing miracles. There's all kinds of talk about this Jesus. In fact, he had just healed a man who was paralyzed and in the process forgave him of his sins, something that only God could do. And the experts in the law and the Pharisees knew that. Jesus has just made an absolute monotheistic statement claiming to be God among us when he healed the paralytic and he leaves there and he starts to teach by the lake and then he does something that nobody would have expected. He walks up to Levi, also called Matthew. We know him by Matthew. Walks up to Matthew, looks at him and says, follow me. Jesus has just called a tax collector for the Romans into ministry. This is something that would have been absolutely revolutionary in Jesus's day. Tax collectors were despised 
by all the citizens of Capernaum, by anyone who was a devout Jew, tax collectors would have been put out of synagogue. They would have been the most despised people group because they're in cahoots with the Romans. Matthew was a tax collector for Herod Antipas. He's the one who had John the Baptist arrested and eventually beheaded. So Matthew would have been despised by everybody and people are captivated as Jesus walks up to him and calls him into ministry. Even Jesus' own disciples would have probably been taken off guard by what Jesus did. Have you ever been amazed by the grace of Jesus and who he is willing to call into ministry? We just sang the song Amazing Grace penned by John Newton who himself was a slave trader. And so we sometimes get so familiar with this grace that we lose sight of how amazing it is. And I love Matthew's response. He's probably dealt with all the rejection of his fellow Israelites. He's probably felt all their hatred. And when Jesus calls him into ministry, Matthew, like any good Jewish boy or girl growing up, would have gone to synagogue, would have studied the scriptures, probably secretly thought to himself that God had rejected him completely because everybody else had. But when he sees Jesus doing all these miracles, when he hears that people are declaring that this could be the Messiah, and Jesus walks up to him and says, follow me, Matthew was probably overwhelmed with the enormity of what just happened because this one that everybody's saying could be the Messiah has just called him into a shared life, into a relationship. And Matthew knows that the call to Jesus isn't just a call into relationship, It is a call into mission. And I love what Matthew does in this text. He invites all of his tax collecting friends, all of those who are regarded as sinners, the scripture describes them that way, the sinners, and he throws a huge party in Jesus's honor and invites all of his sinful friends over. And he's probably thinking to himself, well, if Jesus can call me into relationship, maybe, just maybe he will call some of my friends. And where do we see Jesus when this party is thrown in his honor? Does he distance himself from those who are unclean? Does he avoid the sinful crowd and the reputation it might create for him? No, he's right in the heart, right in the middle of the party. The church is meant to be a sent body that incarnates amongst the difficult, dark places of our world. As was mentioned, for 17 years, I was an urban missionary. I served with Urban Promise. It was a ministry that serves in low-income housing neighborhoods across Toronto. And I observed church after church that was in the community But like Eugene Rivers Church, never left their sanctuary, never left the doors of the church and were waiting for people to walk in. And for a number of years, I saw struggling churches disconnected from the community, eventually having to close down. 2005 was a particularly violent year in our city. It was called the Summer of the Gun. And most of the gun homicides that took place in Toronto took place in the communities where Urban Promise was serving. And there was one community that captured the attention of all the media. This was in 2005. A gang member was killed up in Rexdale, and during the funeral, 
while everybody was mourning, rival gang members stormed into the church and shot up the church and ended up killing another young man who was a part of that gang during the funeral. Now imagine if you're the single mom mourning the loss of your child and all of a sudden shots are fired right outside the sanctuary door where another young man is killed. And this caught the attention of all levels of government. All the focus was on this church and on the gun violence that had seized our city. Now, Urban Promise had been working with another church just down the road from that church where this incident took place, and we had a good problem on our hands. We had so many children registered in our summer camp and so many youth registered in our summer camp as well that we needed a bigger facility. We needed to break the two groups up. And so we contacted this church and we said to them, we heard what took place. We work with young people who live in the very community that this violence is entrenched and these gangs are entrenched. Could we enter into partnership and relationship with you and use your facility for our summer camp? Because we had about 50 junior high age youth coming out to our summer camp. And this was a few months before summer. Again, all eyes were on this church. What is your response going to be to the violence that has seized your community? And so we entered into discussions with this church. We went through the various groups that you inevitably have to go through. We met with deacons. We met with elders. We met with the leadership. We met with the leaders of the denomination. It took about three months. And eventually a contract was faxed to our head office. And they had agreed to allow us to use the facility for our summer camp that summer. It was about two weeks out from summer camp. And I'll never forget receiving the contract. It was the normal stuff that you get when you're working with uh, high-risk children and youth. Please don't bring any food into the sanctuary. There shall be no messes created within the building. Clean every room better than you found it. I mean, there's, there's all these lists of non-negotiable rules that you're supposed to, to live by. But there was one clause in particular that captured my attention, and it said this. There shall be no tobacco, no caffeine, no pork products, and no fish without scales on the premises. Now, I was sitting there thinking to myself, wait a second. If I show up to visit the camp as a supervisor, and I hold my Tim Hortons coffee that I have each morning, and I get my breakfast sausage, my breakfast sandwich with sausage in it, and I step on the premises. This is what it said, on the premises. Is security going to come and take me down? Is there going to be alarms that go off and go, bleep, 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 we got some pork products on the premises. Please, security, take him down. To be honest with you, I've eaten so much bacon and sausage that I'm probably 30% pork products, just, just naturally. And I got 50 junior high age youth, some of them who can't afford a lunch, bring a lunch. How am I going to monitor if they have ham in their lunch bags when they bring it for our summer camp? And it created a huge dilemma for us because we were preaching a gospel to the children that Jesus accepts you just as you are, as messed up as you are. Yes, he transforms you into something else, but he doesn't require you to leave your pork products at the door. And I thought to myself, how is it that we as a faith community, how is it that we as a church, when we're surrounded with gun violence and drugs and gangs and all kinds of stuff going on in our community, 
How is it that even when violence has entered into our own doors, we're, we're worried about coffee and bacon? Don't these youth that we're serving have more to worry about than pork products, tobacco, and fish without scales? I remember contacting the church and saying, we have a huge problem here. We want to partner with you, but we're concerned that the gospel we preach about God's amazing grace that would even call tax collectors, sinners, prostitutes, gang, gangbangers, whatever it is, that, that this Jesus would call anyone into fellowship with him who is displaying a repentance and a faith in him, that they may not encounter that message on a Sunday, which led to a huge conversation, which led to us having to say to this church, I'm sorry, we, we can't use your facility because we're concerned about what the kids may eventually encounter when they come to worship there. Now that was a huge problem for us because again, we're two weeks away from summer camp and I still have 50 junior high age kids getting ready to show up. And while we're in the office brainstorming about solutions to this problem, while we're talking about things we could do, we, we, we started to run through the gambit. We started to say, well, maybe we could just run summer camp in a city park. We'll set up a huge tent. We won't ask the city. We'll just, we'll just assume it's okay. And we'll just run our summer camp in, in a tent. They don't even check these parks in these neighborhoods, so it'll be fine. Another solution was, let's just pray for good weather every day and run it outside. So we're going through madness while we're trying to scurry to create a solution. Because again, I got 50 junior high kids showing up in two weeks, and it took three months to even get this facility. While we're running the gambit of what we would do, the phone rings. We haven't told anyone about what's going on. The phone rings. It's a pastor of another church down the road, and he says to us, what would it take for you to run your junior high camp out of our facility We'll hire two additional workers and we'll rent out a gym. Would you do it? Like, when you pick yourself up off the floor, Jesus refreshingly reminded us, I've got this. Yes, I'm working with my church over here that's concerned about pork products, coffee and bacon and all those things. But stay to the course because I am a God of compassion who does incarnate amongst the unclean, difficult places of society. And yes, my grace is amazing. It says, come as you are, who you are, with all your brokenness, with all your sin. My grace is sufficient for you. And yes, he transforms us into a new creation, but he doesn't require it in advance. And sometimes we as churches, sometimes we as Christians, the danger for us is that we can so distance ourselves from the unclean, hurting, broken parts of society. In our zeal to be holy and righteous and walk with God, we can think that we're doing a service by distancing ourselves from non-Christians. And we get into this holy huddle where we worship and we sing together, thinking that we're glorifying God. Meanwhile, he is out in the alleyways and his heart is breaking for what he sees out there. And he says, I'm here, you're not, and you need to get on my agenda and be here. The church is meant to be a sent body that joins Jesus in what he's doing in the alleyways. 
And in this text, you see Jesus incarnated, surrounded amongst all these unclean sinners of society. These were the people that the Pharisees and the experts in the law despised. They were the ones who said, you're not welcome in the synagogue. And Matthew had experienced that all his life. When Jesus invites him into relationship, Matthew wants everybody to experience this Jesus. But I love what the Pharisees do. They see Jesus sitting amongst all the unclean of society, sitting with the people that good people don't sit with. They look at this scene and they ask a question. Why? Why does he sit with tax collectors and sinners? And I'm sure they ask it to the disciples and the disciples probably say, we don't know. It's catching us off guard as well. And the reason I don't blame them for that question is because it's a good question. It's the thing that we are told in Peter that the angels long to look into. Why does the holy, holy, holy of Isaiah chapter six, who's so holy that the angels have to cover their face because of his glory, why does the holy, holy, holy of Isaiah chapter six clothe himself with humanity, be born into humble circumstances, get baptized alongside sinners when there's no sin in him and allow those he spoke into existence to nail him to a cross because he loves them so much? Why does does he do these things? It's the question of the ages. And I love Jesus' answer. I have not come to call the righteous. I've come to call sinners. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I had a friend who years ago we were playing hockey together. It was an outdoor arena. I've played hockey all my life. It's the greatest sport of all time. That's indisputable in Canada. And we were playing hockey outdoors. It was minus 30 degree weather. You know you're a man when you're playing hockey outside in minus 30 degree weather because everything's frozen. And my friend is from an Irish descent and things were getting a little heated. It was uh, getting a bit chippy in the corners and him and another guy got into a tussle and he fell down onto his elbow while we were playing hockey and it really hurt and it really stung, but it was minus 30, so it froze up quickly. And after the game was over, we went into the dressing room and he took off his elbow pad and he poured out just a pile of blood and yellow goop that came out of his elbow pad because he had fallen on his elbow and there's this huge gash, his elbow had split open. So he did what any self-respecting male hockey player in Canada would do. He walked into the bathroom in a Scarborough rink, ran some, some of Scarborough's freshest tap water over it, looked at it and went, I'm good. He goes home that evening and it's all red and swollen and his wife looks at it and she says, you know, I think you should go to the doctor. And he's like, no, no, I'll be okay. Because he's a man. The next day he wakes up, his arm is swelling even more and it's really hurting and She's like, you really should go to a doctor. And he's like, no, no, I'll be good. That evening, we had tickets donated to Urban Promise to take a bunch of kids to the Raptors game. And he drove the van and was at the game. And we're sitting there watching it, enjoying the Raptors game. But now his arm has swollen and it looks more like a leg attached to a torso. And he's feeling hot and dizzy. He's seeing stars. And a kid had walked by and bumped his arm. And he almost fainted because he was in so much pain. But he managed to get through the game because he's a man. And then we drove, dropped off all the kids. He went home to his wife and now his arm is just massive. 
And he goes to his wife, I think I should go to the hospital and see a doctor. I mean, how patient does she have to be with her husband? He goes to the hospital at 11 at night in Scarborough, to a Scarborough hospital. So you know that this was back when lineups were a bit longer. There's probably going to be a shooting and a stabbing ahead of you, and you're going to be there till late in the morning. That's just how it was back then. It's much better now. He goes to the hospital. He shows them his arm. He fills out the form, and he sits in the waiting room, expecting to be waiting for about eight hours. They rush out with a doctor and grab him five minutes later and rush him into the back room. That's never a good sign when that happens in the ER. You're seeing people who are bleeding out on the floor and you're rushed into the emergency room. This is not a good sign. They hook him quickly up to an IV. The doctor comes to him and says, why didn't you come earlier? You've got a serious infection in your arm and it's actually going up your whole body. And if these antibiotics don't work in the next 20 minutes, we're going to have to remove your arm. Again, wives have to be so patient with their husbands who don't... Now, I'm happy to report that my friend still has his arm to this day. The antibiotics worked. But what does that have to do with the passage we just read in Mark? Jesus has declared to the Pharisees, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Until my friend acknowledged that there was something wrong with him, he would not seek out the help of a physician. And what Jesus is saying to these self-professed experts in who he is, if you think that you have it all together, if you think you're holy, if you think your righteous living will satisfy a holy God, I've got nothing for you. I've come for those who would acknowledge that there's something wrong with them. I've come for those who know that there is this sin sickness within their lives and I've got the cure. Isn't that good news if you're a sinner? The reason I love this passage so much is is because it reminds us that we are to join Jesus as his ambulance workers going out and incarnating in broken, devastated lives on Bay Street, on whatever street God plants us into, and we are to join him, the good physician, who touches lives, transforms hearts, and makes sick people whole again. That is the mission of the church, to reach out for the thousands of people who have never entered a church door. And so may I leave you with this thought today. Wherever God plants you, whatever industry you find yourself in, prayerfully seek where he may be at work incarnated among you, transforming people's lives from something broken into a new creation. And he does it in our own lives in the process as we engage in that work. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this time that we could have together to look into your word. And Lord, we are captivated by your grace. We are amazed at what you do. And God, we ask that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear where you're at work so that we may join you. And we pray for us as a church in our city, in our region, that we would not distance ourselves from the unclean or the broken or the hurting, 
but that we would go out and incarnate amongst the various parts of our city to bring people to the good physician who can heal them. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you guys for your time together. I don't know who dismisses me. Have a great afternoon and great classes. (laughs) 